from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Pace, and as usual, I'm joined by ex-GovType and Immersive Labs product guy, Paul Bentham. Hello everybody. And pro-teamer, Kevin... Oh, oh you uh, called... Oh, you did it again. Every time. We have we have practiced the intro three times, you, and I've called him Kevin every it's single not his, time. Only his mum calls him Kevin. It's and I've Kevin. still not been able to say hello. Oh, hello Kevin. Hi Kevin. <laughs> hello, thank you. <laughs> well, in these short podcasts, we will aim to focus on the human side of cybersecurity with a bit of tech thrown in, social engineering, hacker motivations, cyber crisis scenarios, all that kind of thing. Um, and this week we're going to talk about uh, Sodini- Sodino Kibi. So, Sodino Kibi. Sodino Kibi. So, Sodino Kibi. So, can we just, I Sodino. really can't say this. Sodino Kibi. Sod. Or Revil. Can we just call it the bikini one? See, then you say Revil and I read it and I'm like, is it Revil? Reveal. It can't be Reveal. That would be the word Reveal, yeah. wouldn't oh, it? Yeah. <laughs> Sodino Kibi. Sodino Kibi. Revil. Revil. Revil's probably the, easier. I mean, before we even get into TravelX and all that, we should we can spend two minutes talking about who gets to name these things and how do they name them and what are they thinking? Isn't it Kevin Beaumont? Just always Kevin, always Kevin Beaumont. Basically, Kevin Beaumont read about it somewhere. I think I need to follow more people on Twitter. What other than just other Kevin, than Kevin just Beaumont? Kevin Beaumont. Beaumont. <laughs> Uh, it's typically whoever finds it first gets to name it, uh, and it's usually done by something unique within the malware, so typically a string or something like that. But we don't know in this case what it is. Uh, we probably do. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello, he hello. thinks he knows. He's, oh, he's going to Google it. He's it's, go- it's not Can hear his keyboard it's going. <laughs> <laughs> Google my way to victory. <laughs> um, but... Either way, it's a ridiculous name. And if the first person that found it is the person who named it, that person's an idiot. Aren't we just going to call it the TravelX malware? Yeah, we're going to just talk about TravelX ransomware. It's a bit unfair. It's a bit. That's a bit unfair, though, isn't well, it? Well, it is unfair because I know doing the research that it's been around for a little while, and it's not only obviously impacted TravelX, um, but none of us had really heard of it until it hit the news. Like I, everything in cybersecurity. I don't know, Kevin. You, you've probably been heard about it since 2017. <laughs> Maybe you wrote it. Not quite. Oh, let's not go there. Controversial. Ooh. When I worked at Sophos, you <laughs> asked that all the time. Do you write the viruses? Thinking it. Uh, uh, we're on to you. I've got into a couple of fights with malware authors before. Well, like, oh, hello. Like actual fights? We should do a whole episode <laughs> on this. <laughs> Define fight. Come on, Kev. Though I was, so I used to reverse engineer malware a lot, and I used to publish the decryptors um, to pull out the C2 stuff. And a lot of these guys... Command and control. Translating on the fly, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. A lot of the malware authors will use some kind of crypto, so it's harder for the analyst or static stuff to pull it out. And I was looking at a piece of malware, reverse engineered it, published the scripts, and away we went. And about a week later, he published a new version with a new set of crypto keys. Uh, so I did it again, reverse engineer it, publish the script. Tip for tap. It then did like it again. It. <laughs> Except this time, his crypto key is Kev the Hermit is a gay. Oh, oh that's not acceptable. No. That's not acceptable in so many ways. No, it's just yeah. not even, I mean, it's not even funny. No. So I, I mean, I've got a lot better things <laughs> I'd call you. <laughs> so then, obviously, published the script again, updated it, released a new version, and then, like, right on schedule a week later, another one comes out. Do I need the bleep machine? We're going to need the bleep. So Kev the Hermit is a gay gay what fucks with his mother? Oh! Oh, wow. wow. So we do need the bleep machine. <laughs> I, I don't think 
I don't think it's an overestimation to say that that escalated. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like he didn't expect what did he not expect you to ca- he, he thought oh well you, the guy's done it twice I'm not going to bother with the next and then he was like oh he has that guy this I is, hate that guy you know what this reminds me of and I think this is consistent here Kev these are like some of the answers we get to our labs <laughs> and I think the common denominator here is you no I think the common denominator is the, the F word actually there are some stats I'm not gonna anyway get on them. with your story that was the story. That was the story. Oh, is it? That was the end. Yeah. Was the end. It, to be honest, I thought it ended oh, on a high. I need a buddum tish. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> so we call, we're talking about the reveal, revel, revel, sudden Akibi malware and how it affected the Travelex site. Yeah, so Travelex, um, as I guess all of us will know, are a leading foreign exchange firm. We've seen them in every airport. Uh, and broadly what happened their website went offline on the 31st of december we didn't hear anything from them until like the 2nd of january um then they put up a website that said our our website is down for planned maintenance well planned <laughs> maintenance um and then the twitter attack confirmed what it was but they were still they were still saying there was no indication of uh, of compromise and then the it turned out that they confirmed then that it was this particular variant of ransomware who were also talking directly to the media about you know the nature of the ransom and saying they've been active in their network and all this kind of stuff um so what do we actually know about this bit of malware why has it been so successful what does it do well in terms of what does it do it's fairly standard in terms of actual ransomware you know it does a really good job of getting onto your system it it infects it it encrypts all your files deletes any local backups uh, and then it uses proper crypto so some of the early days of ransomware we saw like people rolling their own crypto or using stuff that was easily recoverable this stuff's not this stuff is using proper aes proper public private key encryption and it's almost impossible to be able to recover it unless you've got the keys did i hear this as ransomware as a service as well that's one of the more bespoke things about this so the ransomware itself is like we said fairly standard but this is ransomware as a service so what we have is we have the sudden Kiwi group uh they go out to their affiliates they sell it their affiliates buy it and i think the ratio is something like for every infection the sudden Kiwi group take 30 percent um and the others take 70 percent. so they take their cut off the top but what they're saying is that it's not just like spam emails going out it's more than that so the idea is that you infect a corporate network in some way through a exploit or through phishing mm. you get in there you steal as much information as you can something that you can use for leverage then once you're ready once you've exfiltrated everything then you drop that final bomb you drop the ransomware well that of course that would tie directly to the whole idea that um that the group themselves or whoever that and i guess because it's ransomware as a service and they're an affiliate we don't actually know who this group are, where they are, what their m- motivations are. We don't we don't have much visibility into any of that. But what we do know is that they were interacting with the media and saying, "We've been in this network for six months. Like we've got access to this data." Um, you know, the the uh, the ransomware part, the encryption bit, was just a mechanism to get them to see that that's what was that's what was um, that's what was going on. Um, the other thing I'm kind of interested in is if you're an affiliate and you're or you're buying ransomware as a service what sort of level of technical understanding and expertise do you need to have as the affiliate fairly low Mm. um like the hard parts being done by the guys who are running the infrastructure who are running their creating the malware keeping it up to date uh they're pushing that out so 
in terms of the affiliate, all you need is that really strong delivery mechanism. And even then, you don't need a strong delivery mechanism. You just need one that works. Yeah, I mean, in this case, uh, the way that it's the, the way that it seemed to appear for um, for Travelex was um, pretty dramatic in the first instance. The yes. way the website went down, I mean. Yeah. So from the external view looking in, uh, all we saw was a fairly janky standard generic IAS error page saying this site is no longer available. What I loved about that, I mean, I mean, I don't ever like pain for an IT operations team, <laughs> but that is a really bad uh, error page. Not even a 404, not even a yeah. ser- service undergoing maintenance. It was properly bad. I mean, that ransomware must have totally destroyed everything. Yeah, and it was up for a couple of days as well. It was a few days before they actually managed to get some other kind of holding page in place. Do we know how this um, got in? And there was a bit of speculation at the time about VPNs, and it could be a vulnerable, uh, a vulnerable VPN that they hadn't patched. It feels like we know that. It feels like someone proved that. We're making, mate Kevin. Kevin Beaumont again. <laughs> Yeah, so we know that they had vulnerable VPN servers and they we know that they were made aware of this uh, a few months earlier. Um, oh dear people, patch, 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 patch! You say that yeah, like... It's too straight, it's too simplistic, isn't it, that? Because what's what about the potential business impact? There's always that. There's always a there's, <laughs> there's always a rationale for why you don't rush to, these, you don't rush to patch. These are gateway appliances patch. as well, so like your window systems they're designed to have automatic updates they're designed for like worser servers and automatic patching policies you forget that appliances on your gateway they're much harder to actually do that and a lot of them may involve like actual downtime this pulse thing is an is it an appliance then is it a, is it a unix based thing or is it part of windows uh, it's an appliance oh it is an appliance so i guess that would that, yeah do people say so people have to get hands on to patch it uh, I don't know exactly the patching process, but it's yeah. not it's not as simple as just. So it's not as simple as clicking that update button when it pops up on my machine. <laughs> no, it's the risk that you have to oh, you have to restart that appliance then, and that's where the business. Oh, what? So the business could be down for a bit. That... <laughs> because it would be bad if that happened. <laughs> really bad if that happened. We also have to remember that for two days patches aren't always 100% perfect when they come out. Like Microsoft have rolled out patches where they've bricked machines and they've caused blue screens. So there is a real danger that any good patching policy should make sure you're patching your appliances in some kind of dev env before you roll it live to production. What is it about VPNs just recently that they seem to be so, like, is it, a, is it just a trend? Is it a human thing? Is it that hackers are like oh hang on a minute turns vpn turns out vpns are quite useful things to hack um or is it literally just a coincidence that we're seeing loads of them getting getting compromised i think what it is is it takes one person to find it somewhere and then everybody picks up the trend Mm. so you'll see a specific piece of um software get targeted and they'll find a vulnerability and then everybody will go looking at equivalents right the same thing happens like one vpn appliance gets found and everybody goes I wonder what all those other VPN appliances are doing. So you see a surge in people going to look for them. Hey, Kev, didn't we just find a uh, vulnerability in a VPN? Uh, We did. It's not quite the same. It's not remote code execution, but we discovered a local privilege escalation vulnerability in a VPN client. So that's the client side. Ah, so not as bad. Not as bad. That's the Pulsar one. If you're... This is mainly for if you're like an insider threat. So if I'm a standard user on a machine then I can use that to gain administrator privileges 
and then I can start to open up some lateral movement from there. So I can get hold of maybe some admin credentials around the box. And if there's weak password policies, there's lots of internal abuse I can start. So basically that. you have to have access in the first place. You need kinda. to have pre-existing access. Kind of. Yeah. Got it. Um, or an well, insider threat. Uh, thinking about this one, vulnerability particularly, um, is it likely that this is something where the exploit code already exists and has been kind of weaponized and they're just using it like as part of an exploit kit or something like that? Or is it are they cleverer than that? Um, probably not. They're probably just seeing something come out. Like there's like three days mm. between a vulnerability and a patch coming out before a, a reliable POC comes out. So they could just be sitting on that waiting for it. And then as soon as it's out, they can just start weaponizing it, using it. And then once they're on, then they can switch to like manual tactics and hands-on stuff. Got you. Right. Let's have a little bit of a think about um, the nature of TravelX's response. Um, lack of. <laughs> oh, I like this bit. And then, uh, but the, the thing I found really, really interesting, of course, and the first thing we all thought about was the timing. 31st of December. You know, it's a... It's a pretty... If they'd been in there six months, that's really mean. Well, they've done it on purpose, haven't they? I mean, no, that's but... my... If that's karma true. is due on those people, well, it, it doesn't always work that way, unfortunately, does it though? No, but picking that date, that time, that's a very deliberate act. You mm. know that you're going to have a lot of people out. You know you're going to have limited resource to be able to pull in in a short amount of time. I mean, it's exploiting another vulnerability in many ways. Actually. The human vulnerability. Yeah, it's it, because we, you know, let's base our assumption on the fact that they're running a skeleton staff at that point due to the due to the time of year. We can assume that that's true, um, so therefore it's already it's kind of putting them on the back foot straight away, isn't it? And I suppose there's a a high likelihood that the lack of that the lack of response is also potentially due to the lack of available people. But they'd have had they'd have had they're an operational company they'd have had people on support. But the right people. Well, but I mean, what's happening? I mean, how bad is this thing that they've it, they've not even not even put an error page up in two days? That's, I mean, that's serious. What's going on behind the scenes, Kev? What's, what's going on? Well, it depends. Like, one of the first things you'd expect is before you make any kind of announcement, you're going to want to try and understand what's happening. Now, in with this ransomware, it's not quiet. It doesn't sit there. It's not unassuming. It's very verbal in telling you, I've infected your stuff. So their internal staff, their IT support staff, will have known that they're infected with ransomware. So that presents us with a challenge because you, as a... As I'm going to use the word as an expert are saying that are saying that they knew and we all know that they knew because ransomware puts a big old window up on the screen in red saying pay the ransom um, and yet their initial response three days later two days later was a holding page that said we're down for planned maintenance the, the problem you're going to have, especially in large companies like that, is their social media team may not have any direct connection to their IT response team or their security team. Oh, you think they just going to no, talk no, to each no, other? No, no. In this example, the website said planned maintenance, right? And the tweet that came later said it's a virus, right? So that says to me that they they put up the they must have put up the planned maintenance page knowing that it was ransomware they must have or that's just their default page like maybe yeah you're, okay you're giving them the benefit of the doubt i'm, like I'm going to give them the, like yeah. it wasn't the best response but i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt they needed to get something up quickly 
Yeah, because it was weird the way that they said um, down for planned maintenance on the website and then literally three hours later on Twitter they were like, actually it's a virus. But this is still two days later. I mean, it's not like... They've had quite a lot of time to decide some what time. it is. Do you, like, most, any social media person is going to have it on their phone, aren't they? They could have tweeted anything. Yeah. It's just no, a I, I, I Do you think, think they just couldn't talk to each other? Um, I, I wonder whether they were making a decision about what they could get away with. I mean, Ooh, this is the other... you think they've lost data? Well, I think this is the other difference between uh, the the pressures put on a um, publicly traded, you know, or, or a company part of a publicly traded group against a private company that can potentially approach this in a different way, more from the angle of brand protection. I think from the moment a financial services organization says we have been the target of a cyber attack, they are petrified of the impact that has on their um you know on their liquidity on their share price and on their brand reputation i think the irony is in this case they cared so much that they ended up doing probably more damage than they, than they would have done just by being completely upfront about the whole thing but let's take let's take a step then beyond you know clearly they're saying planned maintenance or there is a virus and we are doing something proactive i.e taking machines down or whatever but the reality is right at this point they're crippled aren't they i mean they're done we we don't know exactly how far reaching inside their networks this was but the fact that all of their services went down it wasn't just their website it was their ability to do their white label stuff so we know they provide services in airports we know they provide white label services for major supermarkets we know they have the prepaid stuff all of that stuff was also impacted so this was wide reaching and whether they were deliberately took an action to take it down to prevent further spread or further compromise or whether it was that widely compromised uh we won't know until if they publish a, a wider report yeah which would seem unlikely at this point um i, I guess that then then that that the question then is if they were in a place where they were proactively reconstructing the network or, or whatever they were doing um at that point then the threat actor group are in touch with the media saying you know why are they delaying we have their data we've been in their network for six months they just need to pay the they just need to pay the ransom that suggests to me it could be one of two things it could be either that travel x were delaying or it could actually be that they felt that travel x response was such that they might be able to restore those backups and so therefore they were pressing for the for the ransom. Yeah, so if you're going to get the ransom, like if you're, as the attacker, if you want the ransom paid, you want to be quick. You want to try and press them before they can return to normal operations. Mm. So the sooner you can put pressure on them, the, the better that's going to be. It's time, I'm allowed. Well, this is, so there was some debate about this before we started recording because Paul wants to talk about product things because he's a product guy. I'm the product and I guy. Said, and I said, Yes, Paul, you may talk about product things during the podcast, but keep it to a minimum. Can I, is now, is now a time? Yes, but if you do uh, this now, you've used it. one. I'm going to use it. Okay. And now, a word from our sponsors. That's right. If you want to know how it feels for Sardina Kiwi to start in your machine, you can run a lab on it. That's right. You can run a lab on it. You can also go and like play with it and work out how to like discover it. What else can we do, Kev? Can, those, can you reverse engineer it? So Ooh, we, we should do that. If we can't do that, we need to do that. We've got two labs. So one of them is just as a user, you can double-click the malware, you can observe it and watch its behavior, see how it interacts with the system, see those ransomware messages pop up. And panic like the TravelX people. Panic like they will have been panicking. 
the second lab we have is actually unpacking it. It's, it's a, a lot more technical. So you unpack the malware, you extract the configuration data, and you identify all of that command and control stuff. Oh, that's I, cool. I've C totally C2. I've totally done that lab. I'm just going to put this out there. You got to pay the ransom, right? Oh, yeah. well, we were getting to that, <laughs> weren't we? So, yeah, what about paying the ransom? I mean, uh, well, let's go around the table. I'd pay it. Uh, you're a payer. I, mean, I'm you're a a payer. Payer. I know Definitely. that you're a payer because you take an oper you take I'm an operational, operational get, get return to service as soon as possible. Yeah, you're a little bit more moral about the whole thing. Well, ethically speaking, you should obviously never pay the ransom. Well, you don't know where that money's going. You don't know what it's funding. It could be funding anything. Hmm. That being said, especially for large organizations, if you're losing three, four, five million every day you're down, and it's only going to cost you a hundred grand to get back up and running, business simple. sense, that, that seems like a simple option. Does it yeah. work though, Kev? That's the thing. We find with large groups like the Sunday Cuba group, um, like other groups, they're typically very good at actually decrypting your stuff because the first time they don't nobody's ever going to pay the ransom so i think and my view on this is you know choosing to pay the ransom is no guarantee is is also no guarantee there's there's risk associated with that so you might decide to pay the ransom based on your understanding that oh they're a group that generally are pretty good and it's going to get decrypted and it's all going to be fine um but you know we're seeing we're seeing examples now where they're either hanging on to data. We've also, you know, we've also seen situations where, you know, if all the holes aren't aren't plugged, if all the vulnerabilities aren't patched, then they'll just reinfect you and the whole thing will happen again. Exactly. That. At the point of time of ransom, you're probably still dealing with actual recovery rather than identifying how they got in. So that's going to be a thread you're going to be following, mm. but it could take like days or weeks to do that full root cause analysis. So you pay them, that hole might still be open. They might still be able to get in. Yeah. Uh, we've also just seen some sort of, um, I suppose, you might call it diversified approaches to, you know, how ransomware groups get the get the end result they want, which is ultimately the money. Um, and we've seen them now more recently kind of threatening to release that data publicly or to make it available I guess probably on the dark web or to other criminal groups or whatever, that seemed pretty common. Yeah, so speaking specifically for the Southern Kiwi group, um, they actually pushed out to all their affiliates and actually said to them, like, as part of that buying this ransomware, like, go and infect them. Go and steal all that data, pull that data back. And what they actually did is they stood up their own internal forum on the dark web and said, like, publish it all here. And they stripped out some of the more sensitive data that we saw, like social security numbers, credit card numbers, and that formed a second reseller market. Can we talk about the, the you know, the, the responsibility that um, organisations that, you know, hold people's personal information? I I feel that they we're reaching a point where they have a responsibility not just to meet the regulations, but they have a responsibility to let people know that their data's at risk. I don't think it's just I think I don't actually think that it's good enough for Travelex to say oh, as far as we know, no data has been compromised. I don't think that's good enough. I think they should be coming at it from the more risk-averse perspective and saying there is a risk that your data has been compromised. So do things like change your passwords where you need to. And these are proactive measures, methods you can follow. It's going to be much easier if you assume compromise. Assume the worst case, plan for the best. Don't you think that every security per person worth their salt takes that approach? I think so, yeah. 
So basically, what we're saying is that the the the, the bridges between and we've been talk we were talking to customers about this recently. The the bridges between incident response and incident management. So let me guess we would conject that at the incident response level those security guys are thinking we've probably been compromised and we need to do what we need to do to get this network working again whereas the at the incident management level and then to comms basically that organization doesn't want to put its hands up so it kind of gets lost in translation then absolutely your incident the actual responders they're going to be looking for lateral movement they're going to be identifying exactly what happened what's gone out the door what's been compromised You've also got a factor in that human element, like if they were responsible for whatever breach or policy, they're not going to maybe want to own their, mm. stick their hand up and own that. What, yeah. what is it that, is it Norsk Hydra that did something really amazing in this space? Like, so they were affected not dissimilarly to TravelX, but... Yeah, they, so they're a great example of where being completely transparent about the fact that you're you're being attacked but it played massively into their hands. So in their response to the travel act scenario, they'd be something like, hey, we've been hacked. We don't know what's happened. Likely that custom- your data has been breached. Yeah. And and that's going to build more confidence, isn't it? Of course. If your response is, I mean, in this case, Norsk Hydro, you know, they, they are uh, critical national infrastructure, right? So they, um, that them being hacked has a greater potential risk to, things not working properly which is the reason for them being transparent but in this case in the in the case of travelx all travelx had to say was if you have ever logged into our website and you know the password that you use to log into it and you use that password anywhere else please please change it on the basis that there is a possibility that that data has been compromised that's not a difficult email to send that's a very easy email to send it's a very easy tweet to make it's more than that though it's warning people about your details are lost so that's financial data there could be transactions that are being done on your behalf like we didn't know the scope of it at this time so it warning people keep an eye on your finances keep an eye on your accounts look for anything suspicious even if you don't know that's something that's coming you're dealing with finance it's a possibility thing that we also touched on earlier and using norsk hydro as an example they um were completely transparent about it it was a very it was a large-scale and targeted attack and from the outset they said we don't pay the ransom that's not what we do we we're backing ourselves and the experts that we brought in to help fit to help fix this um and i want to talk about that with you in a second kev um but there's what's more interesting i think we talked about that whole publicly listed companies and how it affects them and everything their share price was completely unaffected completely unaffected there was no, not even a dip in their share price because their comms were absolutely crystal clear uh i wanted to talk about experts what happens in this example when you need to call in someone like who do they call in who are these guys that they call in what are their specialisms why do they exist like what's that gig you're typically going to have some kind of retainer for large organizations if you can't run large teams internally if you don't have that kind of structure you're going to have somebody on retainer so you're going to go to companies like deloitte um for example and you'll have something in place with them where it says like, if I have a major incident, I'm going to be able to pull this in. And you might not even have that in place. You might just go, actually, I'm going to go out to one of the big vendors, one of the big contracts and say like, I need help now. This is what's happening. Be transparent with them. And then they can send people in. And what do they do? They just put, they put boots on the ground basically, or do they have specialisms or? Depending on what you're looking at, they're going to have specialists. They're going to have people who are well-versed in what kind of attack you've got. If it's a ransomware attack, they'll have specialists for that. If it's recovering data you're interested in, then they'll have specialists for that. 
So it depends what element you're after. If you're after containment or recovery uh, or post analytics, they'll have they'll have a team out there that they can call in. Now, of course, the argument that will be made by um, you know compliance people and information security managers, they'll say, well, you know, you just need to have an incident response plan. You know, how hard how hard can it be? You just got to spend that time. You know, get that paper in that ring binder, get it on the shelf, get it dusty. <laughs> let it sit there long enough so that everyone can forget what's in it and then just enact that when the moment comes no plan survives first contact with the enemy oh. I'd have gone Mike Tyson <laughs> what's the Mike Tyson one um, I think no plan survives getting punched in the face oh, everyone's got a plan till you get punched in the mouth so no matter how strong your instant response plan is you've got to have the right people who understand your networks so in the case of Travelex you're talking like this is on New Year's Eve. So, are you going to have your A team in, or are you going to have a night shift? Well, in? judging by what happened to them, <laughs> let's say it's likely their A team were not in that day. A team are drunk, I think. A team are <laughs> drunk. Uh, the guy who wrote your incident response plan might not even work for the company anymore. So, there's a lot more to it than just having a good plan. You need to test it. You need to make sure that across all levels of the business, they understand where it is at what point their section kicks in. It does also feel to me like the basics of an incident response plan can be tested. And I think the rest then just becomes variants of that testing. There are basic elements of that plan that should kick in in the event of any incident. Right, and by practicing that plan, it becomes muscle memory, doesn't it? I mean, anything that's hard to do, you should do it more often. That applies to anything in life. Yeah, and of course, the the, the other the other challenge is that whilst um, these attacks are happening all the time, that doesn't mean that every organisation is facing a cyber attack every day. So if they're not facing one every day, then they have to kind of simulate one, right? Or simulate two, or however many it needs. Um, you know, whatever the method is that you choose to use to exercise them, they have to live. They have to be alive. They have to be front of mind for people who work in those in those roles. It's not just your incident response plan either. Um, so in this instance with Travelex, it's a major outage. So at this point, like disaster recovery, business continuity, those plans should also have kicked in in parallel, like return to operations, get stuff back online. Yeah, great. Good. Insightful stuff, guys. Um, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to do this with me. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs UK. Till next time, from all of us, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,